0: I'm Zachary Cartwright. This is Water and Food. This week, my guest on Water and Food is Dr. Jennifer Acuff, who is part of the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture. She's also an assistant professor of food microbiology and safety in the Department of Food Science at Dale Bumpers College. Now, currently, she's focusing on microbial contamination in low-moisture foods, including products like spices, nuts, dried fruits, and also powders. Her goal is to expand the body of knowledge about pathogen contamination in low moisture foods, and also to conduct applied research that provides real solutions. Then she will also identify ways to present food safety training to help small food processors in order to comply with the Food Safety Modernization Act. Hear what Dr. Jennifer Acuff has to say on this episode of Water and Food. All right, well, hi, Jennifer. Welcome to the Water and Food podcast. Thanks for being here today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Uh, Can you first start off by telling me a little bit about your role at the University of Arkansas?
1: Yeah, so uh, my job here is in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and it's a three-way appointment with the majority of that being research and teaching uh, and extension. So it's kind of split almost down the middle, but the majority of it would be on the research and extension side. Um, So I primarily focus on the safety of low water activity foods. um, And then I just try to add a lot of extension components as much as possible to those research projects and then do a bit of outreach um, and training as well. Um, So that's a core mission because we're a land-grant university. So we're always trying to find ways to return our research to our communities.
0: And you're also teaching at Dale Bumper's College, is that correct? And if so, what what classes are you teaching there?
1: Yeah, um, so I get to teach the food microbiology um, lecture and lab courses. And I also teach two online classes for our online master's program in food safety. um, And those focus on applied food microbiology for the industry as well as food biosecurity.
0: And I heard that this year you were awarded this huge grant. Uh, Congratulations, this $200,000 grant from the U.S. Department of Agricultural Natural Institute of Food and Agriculture. And uh, I was wondering if you could maybe just for now give me a, a little bit of an overview of how you're planning on using these funds.
1: Yeah, sure. Thank you so much. We're really excited. Um, It is a big grant for me being relatively new to the university, but it is technically um, a seed grant. Um, So that means the USDA is um, investing a little bit of money. It's big for me, but uh, you know, relatively small for their, you know, large funders, mm-hmm. um, but it's a substantial amount that's going to help my program um, really get some foundational information and data that's going to hopefully spurn some larger uh, multidisciplinary and very collaborative grants for USDA in the future. That's the goal. Um, so we're investigating how well foodborne pathogens like salmonella or um toxin producing E. coli can survive in low moisture food environments. So we're inoculating small pieces of stainless steel coupons. Um, just the little kind of slivers, subcuts of those um, with pathogens and then powdered foods at varying ratios to allow the substances to dry and then store them at different temperatures and relative humidity levels. So in these experiments, we're checking the impacts of specific amounts of water and storage conditions on what we're calling low moisture food, Uh, Persistent bacterial populations. So, we abbreviated that with LMF PBPs. That's a bit of a mouthful. (laughs) Um, So, we're also going to look at how different types of foods or nutrients can impact the survival and what might happen to these LMF PBPs when moisture is reintroduced. So, two big questions in the low moisture food industry. And that scientists also have are how foodborne pathogens um, become house bugs in Mm -hmm. these low moisture food processing environments, and then how do we get rid of them. So our research is really just trying to further our understanding of the contamination and persistent scenarios in a low moisture food processing environment so that we can develop better strategies in the future for cleaning, sanitation, and even hygienic equipment design.
0: And where does your interest in low moisture foods come from? Is is this something that you're personally interested in? Something that you maybe studied in in graduate school? Where, Where is this coming from?
1: Yeah, um, so I did get introduced to low-moisture food safety research um, when I was in school. Um, I did an internship one summer and worked on a project um, that was uh, related to poultry powders that you might use in um, broths um, or reconstitute some other way. Um, And then throughout my graduate school at Kansas State University and then at Virginia Tech, um, I got to work on projects as well that had low-moisture food components. And it was the focus of my PhD dissertation research. Um, And also, I really really just, I like eating low moisture foods. So they're not often suspected as risky, but outbreaks and recalls aren't necessarily uncommon anymore. And so there've been quite a few high profile outbreaks even recently. So um, a lot of times these are foods that we're feeding to our kids, they're convenience foods, um, they're things that have long shelf lives, and so we really are expecting them to be perfectly safe, and, and consumers are very disappointed when they learn that that may not always be true, um, so that's why I'm personally interested, and then professionally, it's just grown as the research kind of pushes me in those areas.
0: And I understand you've had an interest in, in food safety for a, a long time, is, is that correct? When, when did you first uh, start to get into to food science and food safety, maybe even before you, you went to school?
1: Yeah. Um, so I've been really interested in food safety for a very long time. Um, my dad is actually a food microbiologist and Hmm. worked for many years at Texas A&M university and he's retired now, but he still consults. Um, and so I was introduced to food microbiology at a very young age. He would, um, bring me to his classes and his labs. And so that's where I started getting uh, experience um, in that kind of terminology and in that space. Um, So I've always been really interested in microbiology um, and uh, and I knew that's where I wanted to be. And then uh, in college, I decided I wanted to push more into the food micro side of things. Um, So we all have to eat food and it's a very personal thing. And I found that over the years, having some of the knowledge that I did, um, having, you know, a parent that was in that space, it, gave me a really interesting viewpoint and vantage point from seeing how consumers receive information about food safety. And it's made me really passionate about trying to, um, trying to disseminate that knowledge as much as possible. Um, I think it's important that consumers get all of the information they possibly can so that they can make the best decisions um, that they're able to. And so I, I like to be a part of that.
0: And you mentioned that there's been several recalls um, definitely recently. And I was wondering if you could maybe touch on um, maybe the companies or at least the product types that you have seen recalls in recently in low moisture foods.
1: Mm, yeah. So there are some particularly high profile ones, um, things like, uh, I would say nuts, especially nuts and chocolate were some of the earliest outbreaks that were noticed. Um, and some, some rules came out of some of those outbreaks, especially with the nuts, um, and almonds. Um, but I would say the, the really big ones that people notice now are things like peanut butter. So a number of years ago we had a big peanut butter outbreak. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, We've also had infant formula recently. And then the ongoing one that we have is uh, flour. So flour is a, a low water activity food and um, a lot of people don't realize that it's raw. but now you can find on the package that it says this is a raw product, but that wasn't always the case. Hmm. Um, and so there are it's it's uh, it's tricky because all low water activity food outbreaks. They have some similarities, but they also have huge differences because we're talking about, you know, this has got to be probably one of the most varied commodity groups, right? There are so many things that can fit in this category. They're all grown and processed and made differently. And so there's not one thing that is a consistent problem. Mm -hmm. There are some unifying features, um, things like hygiene and sanitation, um, house bugs, like I already mentioned, you know, if contamination happens, it's very difficult to get rid of them from that environment. And so um, I think uh, all of these outbreaks are similar in that they have They have a contamination issue and then the pathogens survive for a very long time and then because of the nature of low water activity foods and what they're used for they're oftentimes sent into many other products so things like flour are going to be added to baking mixes things like peanuts and peanut products are going to be added to granola bars um, and other other food uh, food items right and so. Um, I think we just see that when a recall or an outbreak happens with a low water activity food, it's so often very far reaching um, mm. when it's these kinds of ingredients.
0: And when these recalls happen, do you have any sense of of what it costs a company um, to, to fix it?
1: It, well, it totally depends. Sure. Uh, <laughs> it really <laughs> depends on, on what their issue is. I know that this recent situation with the infant formula is, incredibly costly and I mm-hmm. don't I definitely don't know the numbers there yet Um it's just it hasn't uh, we haven't had that kind of analysis but it can cost a company hundreds of thousands um, po- depending on how bad the outbreak is if there's an outbreak involved recalls will cost a certain amount outbreaks cost exponentially more because um, you have you know have other aspects other litigation and things like that but it could be up to millions of dollars um and it's it's astronomical the consequences of an outbreak and mm-hmm. i think you know with the with the peanut corporation of America, they even, um, were convicted, you know, so Mm -hmm. it's, there are a lot of non-monetized costs as well with outbreaks and recalls.
0: Right. And we even had, we saw a recent article and, and maybe we can add the link to this, but, uh, I saw somewhere that the average recall is somewhere between seven and and $8 million. And of course it's going to, uh, Depend on a a lot of different factors, but I think the bottom line here is that it it does cost a lot, and even though pathogens aren't as uh, present in low moisture foods, what what it sounds like you're saying is when they're there, it's going to be a really unique case, and then it's, it's really difficult to get rid of them. Yeah, um, and it's
1: really nuanced because the way that a recall happens is uh, it's it depends, but um, sometimes it has to do with when was the last time you had some kind of cleaning and a and a negative pathogen test, mm-hmm. and so for a low moisture food, they might be processing for a long time before they're you know having a total clean break, and so sometimes that can mean your recall is is just humongous. Mm. And there's, um, you know, that's very different than like a produce packing house where they're having clean breaks every day. And so you're, you're able to kind of isolate things a little bit differently. So that's a big challenge for the low moisture food industry, especially.
0: And I've noticed in a lot of your press releases or things covering this grant that you just won, uh, the term low moisture will be used a lot and and not so much water activity. And I'm wondering if if that is a decision that you've made or or why you use the term moisture instead of water activity in, in some of these things that are released.
1: Yeah. Well, it really just depends on who I'm talking to Mm -hmm. um, or who I'm talking for. So obviously you guys are very aware of (laughs) water activity, um, but I assume some of your audience is still um, becoming uh, familiar with that term and what it means. So low moisture is just, I have found a more accessible term to Mm -hmm. the public. Um, When I say low water activity, I usually have to then go into the full-fledged definition of what that means and why it's important. And so of course there are Pretty technical differences um, between moisture and water activity, pretty big ones, Mm -hmm. um, as you know, but the general public is just not usually familiar with that term. And so um, it's a little easier to, to get people kind of on the same page as you when you start talking about low moisture and then you can bridge the gap into water activity.
0: And, and I see that a lot, too, even in my own position, whether I'm talking to maybe the cannabis industry or, or pharmaceutical industry or, or something, they will tend to recognize the term low moisture. But uh, I think once you have the chance to really sit down and describe water activity, then it, it starts to, to make some sense. Um, how does yeah. using water activity strengthen your research?
1: Well, water activity gives you a really good uh, read into what amount of water is available, obviously, Mm -hmm. um, and not currently bound by something else. And so it tells us how much is available for bacteria to use. Um, So that's a good indicator of whether or not you can expect growth of bacteria. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's primarily what we use it for. Um, Water activity can be used for a lot of other things, but really um, it's it's kind of our key measurement when we're trying to um, target certain levels. Um, We've seen um, an increase in thermal resistance from bacteria as you decrease the water activity. And so um, whenever you're looking through publications in this field, um, you're always going to be asking, okay, so that was the thermal inactivation rate, but what was the water activity? Mm-hmm. Um, because that's that's one of the key measurements now that we use to compare different commodities. Um, so it really does have a huge impact the water activity on bacteria and how they survive for how long um, and how they die uh, after after they've been treated with something. Um, and so we like to know what that measurement is to help correlate some of these um, some of these trends.
0: I also wanted to touch on your experimental design a a little bit. It looks like you'll be using uh, what's called surrogate bacteria, basically bacteria that you can introduce into a company's production line to verify detection and and, and inactivation systems and, and make sure that they're working correctly. If you're going to use this approach, how can a company that you're working with, how can they be confident that this bacteria isn't going to cause problems down the road?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So um, there's a couple of criteria that um, a bacteria would have to meet to be called a surrogate. And one of them is that it is non-pathogenic. So um, if somebody is using the word surrogate, then the assumption is, it has been determined that it's non-pathogenic. So sometimes that can just mean it's a BSL-1, it's harmless to humans, it's maybe not even a human pathogen. Um, so there's a couple of reasons that a bacteria might not be harmful or a threat to human health. Um, it could be that it's an avirulent strain of something. Um, so you have, to, you have to follow up. I would never, if, if I were a company, I would never allow somebody to come in saying they have a surrogate without at least verifying that, mm-hmm. that, that the research has been done to show that this is the good option and it really is a true surrogate it's it's harmless but um but yeah that's one of the main criteria so I don't know if that fully answered your question
0: I I think it does and I I just think that that approach is really interesting and I'd be interested to see how companies handle this and and how you explain it to them and also the the results that you get from this I think will be really helpful if you're using you know bacteria right there in their production line so I I look forward to see uh, how that turns out
1: Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. It can be, I I think a lot of people in the food industry are very familiar with surrogates now, Mm -hmm. um, maybe 20, 30 years ago that not as many were familiar with it. So it got a lot of, um, you know, concern when you said you wanted to bring in a live bacteria, but luckily (laughs) people are starting to see, um, how helpful that research can be and how, you know, they really are harmless bacteria, but you always have to follow up.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then I also understand that part of the grant funding that you're receiving, it's going to be used to figure out some of the best ways to present food safety training to small food processors that have to comply with the Food Safety Modernization Act. Um, how, do food sa- how do small food processors currently receive this type of training? And what are some of the improvements that you're already planning on?
1: Well, every plant um, and every processor is going to um, give their training a little bit differently. Um, so, it there for the Food Safety Modernization Act, they need to have a um, a qualified a preventive controls qualified individual um, who can disseminate um, the information required in their um, in their preventive controls plan and food safety analysis. So. Um, Every plant is going to do it a little bit differently. Um, my goal, though, is to really get into the good manufacturing practices or GMPs um, and plant design because mm-hmm. um, you could give everybody all of the same the same exact training, the same textbook, everything, and they'll go back to their plant, and they have to figure out how to apply it. And every plant is totally different, their design, their personnel, the products that they're making. And so there's not one single um, set of training that is going to make perfect sense to every group, right? It's going to always be, even within a company, their plants are going to be different, mm-hmm. right? They didn't build all of their plants at the exact same moment, right? They they buy and, and trade and sell and they improve and things don't always look the same from plant to plant. So um, each with that uniqueness, I think we need to have unique good manufacturing practices and uh, unique plant designs. Um, so what I think is that these programs really need to have some customization and have people willing to go into the plant. And, and train their employees in, in that applied environment, in their actual real environment. Um, if the employees understand why we're concerned about even a little bit of moisture you know, condensation on the wall or on the equipment, if they understand why we're concerned about that, they're more likely to see it and actually report it rather Mm -hmm. than just fix it and then move on, um, or maybe not even fix it and just move on. Right. So, um, I think that's what I'm hoping to do is to actually create, um, information and trainings that, actually apply to those processors, no matter, you know, which plant they're in, they have a way to make those connecting lines, um, and train their employees with a lot of baseline knowledge and not just check these boxes. Cause that's, you know, their pathogens find a way to evade all of the checklists. Mm-hmm. They just do. <laughs> <laughs> um-
0: And then finally, you're among a really small group of individuals in academics who study or use water activity in their research. And I was just wondering if you could talk about why you enjoy being in academics. Why have you decided to stay there?
1: Well, luckily, that small number is growing a lot. <laughs> um, so, I mean, part of it is that it's uh, it's a, now a funding priority among some agencies, and so people are like, "Well, I can I can jump into that." And so, luckily, our numbers are growing. So that means that there's a lot of opportunities for really neat collaborations. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's probably why. Um, that's primarily why I stayed in academia at this point is um, I really love to work with students. I love teaching and I like this extension portion of my job as well. And so it's, it's just very fun for me to get to share knowledge, um, give and receive as well. Um, But uh, I really like being able to work with a wide variety of groups um, because I'm in academia. So I get to work with industry members, um, individuals from the regulatory agencies, and then I get to bring students along with that. And um, they're eager to learn and eager to try and they're motivated. And that's just, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's constantly new. Um, it's a little bit crazy. We don't always know what we're doing from day to day. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, it's just a lot of variety and it's a lot of fun.
0: And then finally, what is the timeline for this current project that, that we've been talking about and when can we expect you to come back on the show to, to give us an update?
1: Well, hopefully hopefully anytime you ask me to come I'll have something <laughs> to update <laughs> though it might be small small uh, benchmarks but um, this grant is going to wrap up in December of 2023 um, but I'm certainly hoping that we're going to start being able to compile some of the results that we're getting um, and start working on some presentations and publications as we go um, uh, we, we expect several different things to come out of this grant and um, I'm hoping that they don't all come out just at the end I think we'll be able to Kind of pace ourselves. So hopefully, in the next six-ish, six to nine months, we'll have some new things to talk about.
0: Well, great. Well, uh, thank you so much, Jennifer. We we really appreciate your time. I, I am looking forward to an update. And uh, this is, you know, one of my favorite part of my jobs is getting connect to connect with clients, but also with you know people in the university system and and seeing and understanding what their research is. So I'm sure we will uh, invite you back at, at some point. Uh, but thanks again for coming on today.
1: Thank you. Uh, This was great to talk about this. We're so excited to talk about the research we have going. So I really appreciate the time.
0: I'm Zachary Cartwright. This is Water and Food. Find this podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.